This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a sometimes Hellraiser podcast, sometimes Clive Barker podcast. We are on the latter track. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined, as always, by my trusty co-pilot, Brian Christopher. How you doing, sir? Doing well, doing well. No matter what iteration this takes, it's always a Brian and Joe podcast. We are the glue that holds the messy world of Hellraiser and Clive Barker together. (laughs) indeed and we get to leave behind our trusty pinhead and cenobites this week but uh yeah we're still in that clive barker sweet spot we are talking about a short story and a feature today Mm, and i'm excited because i finally as the worst completionist ever uh it took me 39 years to finally complete all of clive barker's grand total of three films with this one (laughs) Well, and the funny thing is, is that if you know your Clyde Barker films, there's all these different derivations, right? So Mm. ironically enough, yes, folks, we are talking about The Last Illusion, which is part of the Books of Blood and was published on July 1st of 1985. But uh, we're also talking about the film adaptation of that to Lord of Illusions, which was released in August of 1995, so a decade later. But uh, you watched the theatrical cut of the film, and I watched the extended director's cut, which gave me about eight to ten minutes more footage, give or Mm. take. Mm. I wonder if I got my money's worth then. Uh, Well, I got to see more naked Famke Jensen and Scott Bakula, so I'm going to say no, you did not. I definitely did not. Yeah, that's that's not even debatable then. Yeah, I did not I did not get my money's worth. <laughs> I also got to see a dead child, which you know makes me incredibly happy, Brian. <laughs> the things that you can only say within the context of a horror podcast and not have it come <laughs> off as being incredibly creepy and off putting. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I it still might cl- be, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I usually clamp down on that facet of my personality when I'm in polite society. <laughs> and we are anything but on this podcast. So yes, let your dead child freak flag fly. <laughs> say that five times fast. <laughs> I could barely say it once. I'm surprised I got it out. It was well done. I liked it. It was well executed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So had you read this short story before? I had not. This is all new territory for me. Um, I hadn't read the short story, even with movies that are I haven't seen, but are in the general, especially horror community, like pop culture consciousness. Right. I'll have an idea on what's involved. And I, in this case, I only had the vaguest idea that it involved, you know, a magician slash illusionist and that mm-hmm. there was kind of some some blending of fake magic and real magic. Right. Uh, so I really didn't know exactly what I was getting into getting into this one. Hmm. Yeah. And this short story is very interesting because, you know, you and I have spent a fairly considerable amount of time 
unpacking various Barker-isms, and this short story feels like a good kind of synthesis of a lot of his interests. You know, we're talking about different worlds, monsters that have been called forward, there's all sorts of different kinds of creatures involved in this short story, but it's, you know, got some film noir elements. It's a detective who has a bit of a paranormal history that has gone very badly he's recovering and he's called in to essentially do a kind of one last case kind of deal yeah yeah this seems very much like a, a sandbox that clive barker would very much love to play in mm-hmm. and clearly is because he comes back to the demore character a few times uh right. and yeah i i just think both the short story and the uh the movie are very Clive Barker, which makes sense because he's behind both of them. But Mm -hmm. I'm actually kind of amazed at how different they are from one another. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of wild. (laughs) You know, especially interesting considering that with Barker being the through line on these, you know, in the past with Nightbreed uh, and especially with Hellraiser, you see that through line. It's just like these are very similar entities going from the Hellbound Heart novella to the the, the final product uh, in terms of the movie adaptation with Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. Things take a vastly different turn going from the Last Illusion short story to the Lord of the Illusions film. Right. I wonder, do you think it's because we've got a decade time difference, but also this is Barker's last film. So is it something that he's maybe learned from experience from other films? Like what's more cinematic? What's more likely to resonate with audiences? What's going to get him in trouble with the censors and so on? Yeah, yeah, I think there's probably some of that. And there's a degree to which it's, you know, what of Barker's narrative elements you know don't adapt well to film Mm -hmm. and him him maybe seeing that in the short story and seeing like okay how do we make this more of a cinematic experience um but honestly i I think in this case and i think based off of our our pre-recording conversation we might be in a little bit of a disagreement as to how well he shifted the short story to the film adaptation Hmm. Yes, and I should clarify, so I'm a little more pro on the film, you're a little bit more pro on the short story. I have read the short once before because Trace and I covered Lord of Illusions on Horror Queers back in the day, so I think I read the short story for that. But I had seen the film a bunch because my sister Mm. and I grew up watching this. We were huge Quantum Leap fans. So we were, of course, checking out Scott Bakula's filmography. And he doesn't actually have like a huge body of work, or at least he didn't in the 90s. So this was kind of a staple in our house. And, you know, (laughs) shocking no one. A Clive Barker text is very, very queer, and (laughs) this movie is very, very queer. So I can't help but wonder if it's a nostalgia factor combined with that queer coding that really hits my sweet spot for the film. Whereas the short story, I would argue, is a little bit more conventionally film noir. Not a lot of homoeroticism, not Mm -hmm. really a touch of queerness in here. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot more... um... Uh, what's the the word for it like kind of platonic love mm-hmm. in the uh the last illusion in the short story there's a kind of a, a built camaraderie uh right. between you know we have these characters in the short story there's harry of course there's swan who actually isn't 
as much of a character in the short yeah. story as he is in the film because he's actually dead in the short story. Right. <laughs> so I guess we want to give a little context here. So in the in the short story, you know, Harry Demore is a uh, private eye who has been hired to do this case actually in New York, I think in the film they, they shifted to LA, which I'm guessing right. is mainly just a practical decision. Um, <laughs> but possibly, you know, I, I think it works well thematically too, but uh, if too. I had to guess, I think there were some practical decisions there as well. Right. Uh, but in the, the short story, I think it all takes place in New York mm-hmm. and you get the, you get these hints that he's had some, some scrapes with the supernatural in a previous case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the, of course he is brought into a case that's going to really test that to its limit, uh, where there is this, uh, dead magician Swan, uh, who he's brought in to basically look after this body and make sure nothing happens to it. Uh, because there are hints that there are threats to Swan that are going to impact his afterlife a lot mm-hmm. more than they would impact his, you know, his, his regular life. And so for me, the, the big through lines for this are, is really the relationship between Demore and Valentine, uh, mm-hmm. and by extension, Valentine to Swan, uh, because there is a, a genuine love, but you, you don't, I don't think, get the, the homoerotic context or subtext in The Last Illusion that you do, I think, a little bit more in the, the film adaptation for Lord of Illusions. Right. Yeah, they're a little bit more conventionally adversarial. Like, Valentin, if anything, had a kind of main crush on Swan and mm-hmm. wants to make sure that he's protected in the afterlife. And there's friction with Harry because... You know, at certain points, Harry is helping him, but then at other points, it seems like maybe Harry or Valentin or Dorothea, who is Swan's widow. And it's kind of a question of who can we trust when all of a sudden there's danger and illusion and creatures who are all sort of mixed up and we basically have to survive until dawn. And one of the big barkerisms that I really enjoyed in the short story, uh, and we're going to already get into spoiler territory here, is the revelation that Valentin is actually a demon, mm-hmm. um, but not one that does not make him evil. He's a familiar, but yes. in a different kind of language than we're used to reading about. Absolutely. And in a very Barker kind of twist and a very kind of Nightbreed twist, you know, he is he is a demon, he's a familiar, but he is not he is still the one to trust, you know, mm-hmm. or he, he can still be trusted. Right. And that's one of my favorite elements of Barker's writing, that idea that the monstrous does not have to equate to evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's something I really attach to in the short story. And I think when we get a little bit more in depth with the movie, that's an element that kind of isn't there. I don't think no. at all. Mm-mm. Because the the short story is very concerned with issues of like heaven and hell. Like it's actually a surprisingly religious story in that regard. So when we've got these creatures, they are quote unquote kind of coming from hell. And we're protecting the sanctity of Swan's afterlife where he... He basically accrued magic by pledging himself to hell, and then he spent the rest of his life making amends to try to get back into heaven. So they're basically fighting for his soul in the afterlife, and Valentin just so happens to be on the side of good, but he looks like a horrible creature. Yeah, yeah. And that's like, 
that is Barker trademark mm-hmm. copyright. Like that is Barker <laughs> through and through. I love that. Working through some religious issues as yeah. you do. <laughs> and I also think one of the things that's interesting about the short story it's that idea of the deal with the devil and then mm-hmm. kind of in Swan's case, immediately realizing that he got duped and realizing right. that like, not that he didn't get what he wanted, but realizing that like these magical powers really didn't amount to anything. No. And so I love the petty nature of how he goes about kind of breaking his contract with the servants of hell that, that gave him these powers is he diminished them in the Mm -hmm. eyes of the world by making it look like they're cheap parlor tricks. So he can do these amazing like mystical feats and he's using it to like make a buck on the illusionist circuit, you know, and, and, you know, he's not doing it because he wants the money, but he's specifically doing it to diminish the power that these, uh, that this mysticism has. Mm hmm. See, I I hear what you're saying, and I definitely appreciate that as well. But that's one tiny fraction of this story. Like, I think my big issues with the short is that it's a little bit rambly. Like, Mm. we start off with Swan at the end of a magic show, and he wants to have an adulterous affair with this lady. And then she ends up getting eaten by one of his tigers after he's impaled by the swords from his act. And then from there, we go to Valentin recruiting Harry, and we have to make a number of pit stops. And we encounter a bunch of characters several of whom don't really factor into the story. Like, we're introduced to this cab driver character whose brother has a crematorium that they think maybe we can get Swan's body to before dawn. But then we end up having to hole up in Harry's office, and that's where the big kind of final climactic set piece takes place. Mm -hmm. And we later learn that this cab driver was actually killed by these evil creatures. And, you know, there's some great nightmarish imagery with all of the dead characters being played as a kind of musical act, like their bodies become the instruments. And it's great Clive Barkerism, you know, very good prose. But so much of it felt like scattered set pieces to me. Mm. I, I actually wonder with you mentioning that, if there was a degree to which my view of the story was shaped by the fact that I actually watched the movie first. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it might've been something where the, the structure of the movie or the skeleton of the movie actually allowed me to like make sense of Mm. stuff from the short story that if if I had just read the short story first might've been like, where is any of this going? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I already have Barker kind of like holding my hand through, okay, what is the, what is the through line on this story because of the movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe it was easier for me to let a lot of the stuff that, cause like in hindsight with you saying that, like, yeah, like what was with the whole thing with the cab driver? And then like, there's a, a tangent with the janitor, uh, right. stuff that doesn't like super amount to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, maybe that was just, I was able to kind of see that as just a little bit of white noise while mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. sticking with the, the main kind of backbone of what was actually going on. Right. I mean, I think for me, the strength of the short is the fantastical nature of some of these creatures. 
And it's really fascinating to think that Cabal, the book that Nightbreed is based on, doesn't debut for three years after this, because Mm. in some ways you can almost see the genesis of the diverse creatures of Cabal in here. Like we've got, you know, Valentin is a kind of bird-like creature. We've got this main thing that exudes light but if you puncture it it secretes it or leaks it like a balloon and there's a bunch of other really weird diverse kind of creatures that are enthralling to read about if not sort of inconsequential yeah like the potential for the spectacle for some of these creatures i think barker especially in 85, mm-hmm. you know, knew that that wasn't something that was going to translate to screen. No. I do think we see when he tries to recreate some of that spectacle in Lord of Illusions, the CGI is there. It is not quite up to the task of oh, really so making primitive. that. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very rough around the edges watching some of these things play out. And it's not mm-hmm. even the exact same things. Like the, the, the light demon Castrato, I believe is what they called it, um, right. doesn't really make an appearance but you do you get some of that stuff that's trying to be of a similar flavor in the movie mm-hmm. that's definitely something where i would more like to see like head barker tried to make that even like another 10 years later in 2005 or right. you know, maybe in 2015 you know where the the technology was a little bit more up to the task i think some of the the seams would not have shown the way it does in its current form from 95 mm-hmm. yeah Well, maybe before we switch over to the film, I Mm -hmm. wonder, do you have any thoughts about how the short ends? Because in some ways, this is very much a taster of Harry Dumore. And of course, folks, if the name sounds familiar and you haven't put together the pieces, this is the main character from the Scarlet Gospels, a.k.a. Clive Barker's End to Pinhead, which he wrote... uh, I want to say back in like 2018 or something. So this is the introduction of the character, very hard boiled PI, you know, driven by money, loves loose women, (laughs) blah, 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 blah. Like you've read it all before. I'll confess I have a difficulty reading the short without envisioning Scott Bakula. And that actually makes the character less reprehensible and kind of softer around the edges. Mm, yeah, I I cannot think of a better person to have cast as Demore than Scott Fantastic. Bakula. You know, yes. any any issues I have with the movie, his uh, performance is not one of them at all. OK, mm-hmm. but kind of going back to the story. Uh, yeah, I, I like this as a this is Demore's first real hard look at this world you know mm-hmm. he, again the the story hints that he's he's gotten his first peak in a previous case that they allude to um, right. but i think this works as a short story that you know it is it's basically leaving a big old kind of question mark for like okay what's going to become of harry demore now mm-hmm. that this has because it, it starts as as swan story it's kind of valentine's story um but you know, they are, they both kind of resolve and right. it's, it's left to Harry to be like, okay, I know I've, I've peeked behind this curtain. So what's to become of me now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the idea that there are people who are embroiled in this world, but they're actually not the best people to resolve the conflict. You need the outsider, the person who doesn't automatically slot in he's not a magician he's not an illusionist he doesn't seem religious and he definitely doesn't know anything about monsters and demons and that actually makes him the perfect person to deal with all of this because he's coming in he's going to shoot first and ask questions later 
which actually carries over well into you know our previous discussions about uh, some of the Hellraiser graphic novels, where mm-hmm. you know the the whole boom storyline where Harry Demore becomes the Hell Priest, right. he still carries his pistol, and he people does. make fun of him for it, but it actually comes in handy more than once in situations mm-hmm. where like you know magical items or any like supernatural stuff is powerless because someone has like a charm or something, but mm-hmm. that charm doesn't protect them against a bullet from a forty-five. So right. it, it turns turns out that like that kind of uh you know that kind of mindset carries him well through these situations and i like him as almost an archetype of a western not anti-hero but a kind of gunslinger character so mm-hmm. obviously relocated to the big city somebody who's quick on their feet able to get out of a a tricky spot and so on but you know he's a little abrasive he's a little rough around the edges and there's something kind of endearing about a character like harry demore yeah you know it's putting the guy in the middle of a situation where like he's gonna be kind of like what the fuck is going mm-hmm. on which Absolutely. it's just it's a situation that warrants someone asking what the fuck is going on quite regularly in fact yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, why don't we transition over to the film, because I do feel like we might have a little more to talk about, if only because we've got two different versions of the film and quite a few new characters, new plots, and so on. Mm-hmm. And characters that are very different than what very they different. are in the short story. Yeah, I will say one of the things that 10 years, only 10 years, makes a big difference. I was very appreciative of the fact that Dorothea, the Famke Jansen character, is no longer a sex worker that has married Swan. Uh, but there's a still... different kind of there's a different creep factor. <laughs> there's one still that, an ick factor. One yeah. that I would argue is maybe a little worse. <laughs> Oh, oh, definitely. It's weird that the film both acknowledges it as a bit of an oddity, but also kind of doesn't want to go there. So in this version, we're not dealing with heaven and hell. We're not dealing with angels, religion at all. What we're dealing with is a kind of doomsday Jonestown cult led by Nix, who is played by Daniel Von Bargen. So he is is also an illusionist in the same way that Kevin J. O'Connor Swan is, but he wants to end the world. So the film literally opens, it's quite an extended cold open where Swan and his fellow sort of disciples, like the people who have broken off from this cult, they raid the compound where Nix and his large group of disciples are hanging out and they have kidnapped a little girl and they're going to sacrifice her. And this is Dorothea and Swan marries her after we quote unquote, get rid of Nix. So we, we put some great face plates on him and we bury him in the desert because he can't be killed conventionally because he's too powerful. And then it basically becomes a kind of that thing we tried to bury 13 years ago in the desert has come back and we're all being killed one by one. And Dorothea and Valentin and Swan are caught in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to those faceplates just for a second. Um, very, very like cenobite sequence mm-hmm. you know you get the the screws with the you know uh, pinning the the faceplate into nix's yeah. head uh it was uh it was a delightfully barker sequence 
Mm-hmm. And yet still feeling like it it has ties to other properties, right? Like I think of something like the man in the iron mask or even Victorian torture devices that you might hear of in a Poe story. So it's definitely drawing on familiar imagery, but then mm-hmm. it's also doing something that's distinct from that as well. Yeah, because it's, it's Barker flavor, but it doesn't feel like he's just like repeating mm-hmm. stuff from Hellraiser or from, from Nightbreed. Right. Although you can see elements from both of those texts very clearly in this film as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's it's never a thing where I never felt like watching Lord of Illusions that I had an issue with like, well, this just feels like he's rehashing stuff mm-hmm. from his previous two movies. It is incorporating elements and themes that he likes to explore. Sure. But I think he does it in a very he frames it a lot differently. So it doesn't seem like it's just a repetition. Mm hmm. Yeah, so tell me, obviously you had a a bit of an issue with the fact that Dorothea goes from (laughs) abducted child to bride of swan. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit creepy, but was there something else that didn't work particularly well for you in the film? I find it's probably an overstuffed first watch, isn't it? It's, It's a little overstuffed. And there's something, there was something lacking for me, and it's hard for me to quite articulate it. Okay. a lack of agency in the characters towards the end. Like it seems Mm. like a sequence of events that just kind of happen and aren't necessarily the product of the characters like doing deliberate actions. And it's again, it's very hard for me to really quite put my finger on it. And I'm sure it could be very easily argued against, but the, the scene for me that comes to mind that I think best articulates that is the scene where Harry is fighting with Butterfield. Mm-hmm. And uh, for, you know, for, for context, Butterfield is one of those characters that's very different here than he was in the short story. In the short right. story, he is a lawyer. He's a very like well-suited put together uh, collected guy. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, he is kind of the right-hand man for Nix, yes. and he is a kind of androgynous. He's, oh, yeah. he's definitely not a a lawyer type. He is no. very kind of like uh, – he's got a lot of flair. He dresses yeah. in like skin-tight gold clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got like no eyebrows. There's just – he he's – it's everything. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> I love a lot. this character He's a so lot. much. Yeah, no, I quite like Butterfield. But in the, the fight between Butterfield and Harry and kind of like their climactic scene at the end, they're fighting and then Butterfield goes to hit Harry and he misses and he just happens to hit an electrical wire in the yeah. wall and dies. And yeah. I feel like there's a lot of that where like the characters are involved, they're mixing it up, but it's like... Mm-hmm things just kind of coincidentally happen right. that resolve the issue as opposed to like specific things that the characters are doing to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. Like some of this, it's weird to ever suggest that a Barker text could be a little paint by numbers, but some of this does feel stifled or even constrained within the Hollywood system. I don't get the sense of, audacious experimentation that you see in Hellraiser or even Nightbreed where Barker is really trying to color outside of the conventional lines of what we would see in a Hollywood text. This feels 
almost quintessentially mid-90s horror for me. Mm -hmm. And I think there's still, as you said about Butterfield, there's still flair here. Like there's some unusual choices, the subject matter, some of the costuming, you know, this movie is honestly just so legitimately queer. I can barely contain myself. <laughs> but in some ways, it's also neutered and playing it safe in parts, which is a little disappointing and conventional. And I, I wonder to what degree, because, you know, we have this three movie progression with Barker where he does Hellraiser, which is very much an independent thing. You know, mm -hmm. he does it with a small company, gets more money from, I think, New World eventually. Yes. But it's still inherently a UK product too, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's on his home turf. He hasn't quote unquote come to Hollywood yet. Uh, yeah. And then I think Nightbreed is his first real foray into Hollywood filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Disastrous. Which, disastrous. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think he's a little gun shy in this one in terms yeah. of like he's trying to, you know, you, you talked about it as a little paint by numbers. I think he is trying to stay within what he perceives to be like the Hollywood guardrails. Mm -hmm. And he still winds up getting his wrist slapped in terms of like the studio wanting to cut yep. like what? 10 minutes 12 minutes out of mm -hmm. the out of what he made um so i think it wound up being in some ways and and this is going to sound worse than i mean it to be like the worst of both worlds where right he is self-censoring to a certain degree mm -hmm. and then and still then being censored. still <laughs> still being censored yeah <laughs> you know and so i still say that to say like this is still a very good movie mm -hmm. i really like it i just don't quite love it Right. Yeah, I think that for me is where the nostalgia factor is really coming into play. I've seen this movie, honestly, probably nearly 10 times in mm -hmm. my life, which I can't say for a bunch of films, like I've seen several films more than that. But most films, you know, I see once or twice, and I maybe revisited again as an adult. But there's something I find really fascinating about this movie, how it begins as something culty and then we delve into this world almost um almost a bit of a, a condemnation or a satire of the way we treat celebrity and like particularly magicians mm. but before we were really starting to critique people like david blaine or other kind of famous las vegas style shows obviously houdini had kind of done it first and quite a while before this but it's hard to shake the sense that this is an L.A. noir mixed with some of Barker's intrinsic sensibilities. And even some of the choices of set pieces I find just so evocative and weird. And you just wish that the film was comfortable or able to play in that area a little bit more. Like the end of this film is so fucking wild yeah but it feels abbreviated and like as you said things just seem to happen a little too conveniently a little bit too quickly and you you wish even with the extended cut there's still things where you wish we could spend a bit more time with them yeah yeah th there's a lot of hopping around and mm -hmm. and and to places where things the the tone kind of bounces around a lot because right yeah, the everything with the cult is just very bleak and brutal. But mm -hmm. then you get like a whole sequence where he goes to the Magic Castle in L.A. Right. Which, uh, for those who are unaware, is basically like the the headquarters for illusionists in the mm -hmm. California area. Um, I think even with a wider footprint than that, like this is a well-known place and a well-known mm -hmm. kind of like 
hotspot for people in the 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 illusionist industry right and there's just this whole sequence where he breaks in and he's there with this this illusionist that kind of likes what he's doing in terms of kind of like shaking up the status quo and mm-hmm. so they they try and get these files with uh the these secret files and and the the illusionist says like look for stuff that's going to be hokey and so right. like where they're going for the files is this big like trap that like almost takes off their hands it's so indiana jones it's yeah, ridiculous yeah. and then there's the whole uh the the whole hologram with the mm-hmm. the monster that 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 attacks them yeah it's just like like that's almost getting into you know I've talked on the show about liking when there's like a almost a whimsical playfulness that that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that Barker brings like this is touching on that a little bit like he's sure. just like this whole scene almost seems like it's it's kind of a goof um, absolutely which I love but also like I wonder if that's kind of adding to the the overstuffed feeling mm-hmm. that the movie has overall. Absolutely. There's a bunch of moments in the film where you think, is this just because Barker wanted to show he could do it? So he does. You know, Mm -hmm. there's this moment where we attend Swan's funeral and it's a big black tie affair. And Harry, of course, uses it as an opportunity to stake out Swan because Swan is a huge fucking narcissist. So he's (laughs) there in the background watching people cry. So Harry tracks him back to this deserted, dilapidated place near a bridge or an underpass and Swan nearly drops a car on him just to prove that he can levitate heavy objects. And sure, it pays off later because we learned that because Swan can levitate a car, he can also levitate Harry. And Harry uses that to get rid of Nyx in the climax. But we also saw Swan levitate during the opening moments of his magic act. So we technically didn't need this sequence at all. But also we get... A big slow-mo thing where, uh, you know, Scott Bakula has to dodge a falling car, and it's very entertaining. (laughs) Honestly, I was more impressed not by the fact that Swan could levitate a car and then later on he could levitate Scott Bakula, but that he was able to levitate Scott Bakula when apparently three minutes earlier his Mm -hmm. brain had literally exploded it's true (laughs) but in this movie magic can help you to do the most unrealistic things like true you know nix has literally been shot in his anus pucker hole forehead (laughs) in the climax by dorothea and yet he is still able to fully engage in a climactic battle before he is tossed into the center of the earth that that was actually pretty amazing i kind of love that just all the way down into the molten earth's core that's how far this hole this well went down thank god (laughs) scott bacula managed to catch dorothea or else think of how far she would have fallen that would have been awful that would have been that would have been bad (laughs) stuff (laughs) i think it's just it's stuff like that you know like there are moments of indelible nightmare imagery in this but it's also mixed with like we get to see a whole segment of swan's magic act and honestly it looks hella entertaining and i love that we get to see part of it like i don't know this movie is so extra to me which i think feeds into not a small amount of camp appeal but also just that feeling of well if this is the last film we're going to get from barker i do love that he is trying to swing for the outfield or even the bleachers and you just you can feel people pinching him off and maybe even himself pinching himself off at various intersections that make it a little bit sad but overall there's so many 
great moments in this film. I can't help but love it. Yeah, yeah. It, there's there's a tension there, isn't there? There's a paradox mm-hmm. of he is both swinging for the fences while also cutting himself, like he's cutting his knees out from under himself in mm-hmm. certain ways at the right. same time. Um, and I think that's where it's it's that unevenness that like loses me a little bit because it's, you, you get this promise of like the whole opening sequence and the whole sequence with the, the initial cult. I'm like, okay, I am on board. Like mm-hmm. this is, this is going to be a Clive Barker movie and I am, right. I am here for it. Um, but yeah, it's just the, the way things kind of meander and, mm-hmm. and don't quite add up. Like this doesn't become a movie that becomes like more than the sum of its parts. Like this is a movie that suffers from the sum of its parts, even though the individual elements themselves are really interesting and really good. Like I love the magic castle. I love mm-hmm. the, the cultist, but like the way it mashes together doesn't quite come together in a fully satisfactory way for me. Right? No, I can definitely understand that criticism. It's something that I think I can more easily overlook if only because it gets us to the things that I do really, really enjoy. Like, sure. I cannot say enough how much I love the entire last act of this. Like, when we get back to Nix's compound, when we resuscitate him, when Daniel Von Bargen just gets to absolutely showboat through mm-hmm. the entire last act of this, and he's got, you know, his face is discolored because of where the masks were, so he's absolutely grotesque and just (laughs) disgusting but he also seems to be channeling you know island of dr moreau in his grandioseness with his his white sort of sheet robe and diaper and then he's performing all these ridiculous magic acts he's boasting um i did want to draw your attention to one thing i think i cued you back when we were reading books of blood volume two we read a story called The Skins of the Fathers. Picked it up. I absolutely picked this up. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You take it from here because I want to hear your thoughts. The sequence where he turns on his flock mm-hmm. uh, and sacrifices them, basically saying, like, you're not worthy. Mm-hmm. You basically just waited around like lambs until I came back. And so the way he kind of executes this sacrifice is that he uh, releases this torrential rainstorm that loosens the ground. They all get swallowed into it, except for a few very unlucky people who only get sucked in about halfway, and then the ground re-solidifies. Yeah. And... I was very interested to see because, like I said, I watched the movie and then went back to the story. I'm like, oh, "Oh, is is this a concept that he visits in the story or is this an allusion to that scene from from Skins of the Father? And and absolutely, I have to think he was like, you know, I I know this is from a different story, but I want to see what this would look like. And I think that he pulls it off. That is so creepy. Uh. That's such like especially the one where you just see the arm. Of the mm. one person coming out of the ground. But it's still moving. It yeah, still grabs yeah. either Dorothea or uh, Harry as they're trying to go up the stairs at one point. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do think he pulls that off. It's absolutely wild. This definitely, it didn't give me nightmares because I would have been about 13 when this movie came out. I didn't see it in theater, so I probably would have even been older because it would have been on VHS. But (laughs) this stuck with me, like this whole kind of sequence, watching them break bottles and then fall 
onto their knees in sacrificial platitude to him because he wants them to suffer to come onto him and be in his presence like it's ooh, it's some really good stuff i i will say one of the things that you're missing in the theatrical cut is we do get to see the cultists before they arrive back at the compound as adults 13 years later so there's a brief montage of all of these people who have killed their families and their mm. co-workers in horrible ways before packing up their cars after receiving this invitation from Butterfield to say, he's here, come back. Mm. It's great. Like, there's one guy who works at the snake house at the zoo, so he kills a co-worker with snakes, and then you see him driving, and he's got the snakes in the background. So you can see him at the compound he's the guy who handles the snake but it feels like such a wait what why do we have a snake in this movie all of a sudden and it's like <laughs> oh here's a little bit of backstory yeah and i feel like there's a through line with that because i think if i remember correctly he has them in the opening sequence as well he does. Mm-hmm. uh so yeah it's it's interesting yeah I, I do think you're definitely losing something where you get to see like that carried over into his day-to-day life or maybe mm-hmm. it was influenced by his day-to-day life like maybe right. he had always worked at that you know that that snake farm mm-hmm. um and so that was you know he had this affinity for the snake so yeah i think that that's an area where cutting it i think you're losing a little bit of that flavor and context mhm yeah and it it also just creates some some really good horrifying imagery because one person it's I think it might be the main guy with the glasses. Mm-hmm. He is a father and a husband. And you see that he has killed his wife and his young daughter at breakfast. So you see the bodies just lying on the floor in pools of blood. And it's shocking and disturbing and a way that a 1995 film typically wouldn't do. And of course, doesn't because <laughs> they were ordered cut in order to get a theatrical release. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, I don't know if it's the censorship or if it's the test audiences where it was mm-hmm. like, maybe that was too off putting for a mainstream audience. But, right. you know, I think that's the, the going back to the idea of the tension between Barker sensibilities and how much of a mainstream audience you can get for that kind of thing. And if I, if I remember correctly, I think he, the only way he even agreed to the cuts that they made to get it down to a theatrical release was he said, okay, as long as you also do a director's cut, like mm-hmm. all agree to this stuff, right. which they did eventually do, which they did eventually do. But I will also say if you can find the director's cut nowadays, like, so I actually watched this on the internet archive uh, online with Spanish subtitles throughout <laughs> its two hour runtime because Screen Factory put this out on a lovely Blu-ray back in the day, but they did a limited print of it and it now goes for $227. Hey, boy. Yeah, yeah, which is like, I get that this is a film with kind of niche limited appeal to a mass audience, but it was also a theatrical release that came out from one of the literal godfathers of contemporary horror, and it's just baffling to me that it's basically almost impossible to find. I always watch the extended cut if I can, if only because it does fill in. Like most of the cuts are very short, but we do get more of Valentin. We do get more of Dorothea and, you know, her thoughts on her relationship with Swan. We do get more with Nyx and Butterfield and these cultists. And it's not enough to address 
your complaints that you've already raised about the film but it does even it out it kind of makes the pacing feel a little bit less janky well and plus as is standard practice with you know barker properties uh i I heard they cut a pretty substantial sex scene between jansen and bacula Mm -hmm. yeah it it definitely helps to understand his actions, particularly in the climax. Like, why is he so interested in this girl that they've maybe had a kiss? <laughs> <laughs> and it's a bit weird. It definitely feels like a gay man who doesn't entirely understand heterosexual sex because the coupling <laughs> looks a little bit funny. <laughs> like, it's a little skinamax uh, in that way where you're kind of like, oh, this is two very attractive people having very unusual looking sex. But um, <laughs> hot sure probably one of those things where like it's okay what sexual positions would you get into where you can strategically cover up the stuff that Mm -hmm. we need to cover up during this scene oh a hundred percent because the the way that they finish not like finish finish but like the way the (laughs) scene finishes they're having pillow talk but she's basically lying discreetly over his crotch as you do as you do but there, it's like <laughs> it could almost be 69ing position the way that barker has them but they're still fully nude it's it's a little bit wild it's st- very strategic framing mm-hmm. <laughs> um all this to say i can appreciate that this is probably a weird and wild first watch for you but i was very happy to have the excuse to revisit this because if i get to watch this every couple of years i'm kind of a happy guy (laughs) it's i will say it's definitely one i want to go back to i think Mm -hmm. it's got enough good stuff and stuff that i think would actually wind up i think subsequent viewings would reward me in terms of liking Mm -hmm. it maybe even a little bit more honestly i think my my biggest bone to pick with this movie now especially within the frame of after having read the short story is right. I really feel like they diluted Valentin's character into oh, yeah. something that's so much less interesting. Like he is, he goes from in the story being this kind of very kind of conflicted, but also very loyal familiar mm-hmm. demon to just being like a milk toast assistant that winds up just getting killed in gory fashion, but also right. kind of anticlimactically. It's true, yeah. I find his death very underwhelming because you think that Butterfield is going to torture him and then he tortures him a tiny little bit, but not a huge amount. And then he kind of takes out one of his eyes or something. It's kind of hard to see what happens to him in that hole after we've dug up Nick's, but we just kind of leave him there unceremoniously. Yeah. I will say, I definitely appreciate that the character is more complicated and interesting in the short story, but I do kind of love that in the movie, both of our secondary henchmen characters, so we've got Butterfield for Nyx, but then we've got Valentin for Swan. I love that they're basically both henchmen who are in love with their bosses. (laughs) Like, Valentin hates Dorothea because Mm -hmm. she's a woman who occupies Swan's attention, and then he hates Harry because Harry is a person who comes another in man who, and who occupies, occupies Swan's attention. Swan's attention yeah. <laughs> I'm like everyone in this movie is horny and queer. <laughs> also, um, <laughs> this is such a shitty thing to say, but finding it a little difficult to believe that this many people are like craving the attentions of Kevin J. O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> 
his hair in this movie is so bad at one point he actually i don't i can't remember if it's the extended edition or the theatrical cut but he at one point pulls the hair back into a kind of man bun before yeah. that was a thing and i think he looks way better mm-hmm. and i really don't understand the styling of this character because the haircut is atrocious and i i like kevin j o'connor like Oh, I love him. I the the mummy, like mm-hmm. he, his, Benny in in the mummy is one of my favorite characters of all time. And his character with Treat Williams, so yes, he does a lot of work with Stephen Summers. So he's in Deep Rising as well, and he is pitch perfect. Like his forte is actually secondary supporting comedic relief. Yeah, like character actor kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely a character actor. But I love that he actually gets to play. A little bit more serious here like swan is kind of a a pathetic character who gets a heroic moment but he is ultimately never going to be the hero and i think there's something really captivating about that i do love that i think what is missing from from that character is i didn't get the charm Hmm. that facade that would make you believe that this many people are like drawn to him in that way mm-hmm. um because we really only see him in the context of like we're introduced to him in the opening scene where he's kind of this like this younger kid right. he's trying to do the right thing but you also get a sense that he's also trying to kind of like soak up some of that power from oh, sure. from mm-hmm. nicks and then when that's carried over you only get to see him briefly in his like magician persona right. uh in that one scene where he winds up you know quote unquote dying and mm-hmm. then the rest of it is him like trying to stay off the radar running yeah. from his responsibility and only like really coming to some kind of uh redemption at the end mm-hmm. so yeah i i just don't think we get enough to to really get a grasp of like why valentin would be so obsessed with him absolutely yeah i can definitely see that i i think in part because we need to make harry moore and by extension scott bacula as sexy and sweaty as humanly possible so we don't (laughs) want swan to actually be a figure of admiration or adoration we're just meant to believe his tricks his illusions are so compelling and you know that floor show is so good you know basically showgirls rips this off (laughs) it's hilarious it comes out the same year as showgirls but this looks like he could be sharing the stage with nomi malone absolutely (laughs) like what why would a world-renowned magician have male dancers in thongs brian <laughs> because of Clive fucking Barker. That's Showmanship. Why. <laughs> yeah, Clive fucking Barker. <laughs> I would see that show in a heartbeat, is what I'm saying. Yes. I mean the 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 dancers, the mm-hmm. the whole entrance where he explodes out of a oh, fucking yeah. coffin. Like, yes, I I would a hundred percent pay to see this in Vegas. Ridiculous. That's probably the most unbelievable part of this is that it's in Los Angeles and not Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I think my brain just assumed that they trip they took a road trip to Vegas for this because everything right. about it just it oozes Vegas. Oozes Vegas, yes. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, do you have anything to say about our double bill here? Oh, I am so glad that I have finally completed (laughs) clive Mm. barker's filmography with the shame of knowing that like i just needed to watch one more out of three movies in order to do that and it took me this long but you know 
for whatever qualms that I do have about the the final product of the theatrical release, because again, I didn't see the director's cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely this is one that I will definitely see again, and especially I think I do need to hunt down the the director's cut to see if that will also kind of improve the overall experience. Um, but I really like this pairing. I mean, obviously, it's an obvious pairing because mm-hmm. it's the same story, but so different. Yeah, I like the fact that we got stories that are it's the same story but very different kind of takeaways and uh, very different experiences for each so yeah this was a fun one Hmm. all right well before we announce where we're headed next mr brian if people wanted to talk your ear off about why you should now just double down and watch the extended director's cut how would they get in touch you can get me at either twitter or instagram uh, at evil taylor hicks All right. And if folks want to chat with me about all the queerness in this movie, you can reach me at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And of course, we'll thank the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network for hosting the show, among many, many other quality entertainment. But uh, Mr. Brian, we're really changing gears for our next episode, because suddenly we're going to be talking about Clive Barker's YA book? Mmm, interesting. I'm excited. Yeah, so folks, we're going to be checking out The Thief of Always, because we've been wanting to check back in with Barker when he's writing books. It's been a while, uh, but we also don't have the the time <laughs> right now to put into something like A Magica or The Great and Secret Show or something like that. So we thought it'd be interesting to read something that's gently inching towards his more fantasy level stuff, but also this is very firmly like a kind of coming of age YA book about 11 year old so uh I've never read this I'm very intrigued oh very nice uh then yeah it'll be a first experience for me too and yeah it'll be I've read a few of Barker's uh you know full novels but Mm -hmm. most of my experience with him are through his short stories and novellas so I'm looking forward to kind of going down this path a little bit more exciting stuff All right. Well, that's The Thief of Always next time on Such Sights to Show. But, uh, you know, until then, try levitating over a giant hole, which mirrors the hole in your forehead, which also looks like a butthole. Metaphor. (laughs) Metaphor. So deep. (laughs) Like the hole. Ah! squad.